Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And I just knelt at the foot of the altar and I told our Lord about my anxieties and my ideas for the future, asking him to let me know what he would wish. And like a flash I saw that if I became a religious, and especially a missionary, I would be the mother of millions and millions of souls. That I had a great longing for this work, for the missions, and that we hoped one day, if the Holy Father ever spoke and gave permission for it, that we would be a group that would form a congregation of medical missionaries of Mary. Mary Martin, in her own words about the moment she realised her calling in life and the dream to form a congregation of medical missionary sisters. So who was this pint-sized, blue-eyed dynamo of a woman who achieved so much in our lifetime? This is the story of the foundress of the Medical Missionaries of Mary, Mother Mary Martin. She came from a well-off Catholic family. Uh, They lived in Dublin in Glenageary when she was born. She was born in 1892, the second child of a family that turned out to be 12 children uh, in the end. Uh, most of her uh, life at home was spent at their home in Greenbank, Monkstown. And uh, they had a happy family life in Monkstown with several servants, governess and so on. Their family had a lot of business connections, particularly um, wood and coal importing, going back for centuries As more and more children arrived, one every year really, uh, Mary became a great ally of her mother and had a great close friendship with her. But when she was 12, she was attending uh, the Sacred Heart Convent School in Leeson Street and she got a a bad cold in a a thunderstorm on an open um, pony and trap. And from that on, she had heart problems, heart difficulties. Her early life was idyllic until tragedy struck. Tragically, her father died when she was 15. He died in a shooting accident at home and uh, it was St. Patrick's Day of 1907. There was an inquest and it was believed that it was an accident 
that he didn't take his own life. Terrible tragedy. The mother was pregnant with her 12th child and Mary's bonding with her mother increased greatly as they worked through that terrible family tragedy. Mary wasn't one for school. She went to Edinburgh to the Sisters of Mercy but returned after a year homesick. She also attended the Holy Child Sisters in Harrogate, London but again this didn't last long. Then at 18 her mother took her to Germany to a finishing school for a year. You see, Mary's education happened in other ways. And when she was in Germany, in this finishing school, it was 1910 and it was uh, one of the year of the Passion Play in Oberammergau, which happens every 10 years. So she got herself from Bonn to Munich and negotiated by tickets uh, to Oberammergau and then she linked up with the rest of her family and went to the Passion Play in Oberammergau. Now very few 18 year old Irish women of that time would have had that level of travel and experience and the following year her uncle Charlie who lost his wife and he was grieving and he decided to go on a cruise to the Caribbean and he asked her to accompany him. Now she was 19 and very glamorous and gorgeous and she went on that cruise. So her experience of other cultures and um, self-confidence and she didn't miss anything that she saw or people she met or she remembered them. She sort of had a network that would put Twitter in the halfpenny place. As Mary entered her 20s, her path in life was now taking shape. What was I going to do with my life? I was very fond of nursing the sick and the poor. So when I had all my home duties done, about half past 10 or 11, when I felt I'd done my part, I used to go out then and visit all the poor people of the parish, settle them down for the night, the cancer cases, the tuberculosis cases, those who are suffering, preparing for death. With the outbreak of war in 1914, Mary's brothers and her boyfriend all signed up to fight on the side of the Allies. Mary herself joined the voluntary aid detachment where she trained as a nurse and at 23 was assigned to Malta, where she received the war wounded from Gallipoli. We can't miss the fact that her younger brother, Charlie, and her older brother, Tommy, were in the war. They had been in Trinity, Tommy a graduate, Charlie an undergraduate. Tommy uh, was with the Connacht Rangers and uh, Charlie with the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Now, Charlie went missing on the 8th of December 1915. And Mary writes to her mother from Malta. The 27th of December, 1915. My dearest mother, I cannot tell you how sorry I was to get cable about Charlie and I'm anxious by awaiting more news. I sincerely hope it's nothing serious. The day I got your cable, I immediately rang up the NBO to see if by any chance he had arrived with the last batch of men who all came from Salonica. But as I've already told you, he was all right when they left him but that was two days before the retreat. She was a profuse letter writer as the correspondence to her mother about Charlie continued to flow. The 5th of February 1916. My own dearest mother, it really is terrible the length of time one has to wait for news. We got several more of Charlie's regiment, but they belong to B Company and only know he was wounded on the 7th and again on the 8th when he and about a 100 others have been missing since. 
They all seem to think he has been taken prisoner, so we must still hope for the best. From tending the war wounded at Gallipoli, Mary went to France, where she looked after the fallen from the Somme. And while there, she received very bad news about young Charlie. She was subsequently assigned to France and she served all during the Battle of the Somme. But it was the 2nd of July, 1916. The Battle of the Somme began on the 1st of July. So on the 2nd, the convoys of casualties were arriving at the hospital in Ardalo where she was serving. And when she came off duty on that terrible, terrible evening, she got a letter from home confirming that Charlie was dead. 2nd of July, 1916. My very dearest mother, a thousand thanks for your very long letter. I really got quite a shock about poor Charlie, although I had practically given up hope of him turning up. I still thought there might be a chance and really was hoping against hope. As you say, when one realises, it is really a great consolation to know that he did not suffer for long and feel sure Our Lady took care of him and that he is out of all suffering now. What a brave boy he was, and like him to have his wound dressed and then to go on again. It is really impossible to realise that we shall never see his dear face again. How we shall all miss him. There's a widely held view that Charlie's death played a significant part in shaping Mary's future. Now, it's my strong belief that Charlie's death changed her world view to the point that I spiritually believe the real founder of the Medical Missionaries of Mary was Charlie because I think that had Charlie not died, I think the course of her life, her value system and, you know, they they belonged to a certain social class, her boyfriend... Gerald Gartland from Dundalk was also in the war. There are many letters referring to Gerald and looking at the wounded list to see was Gerald on them. I think she might not have um, begun to see what suffering is had it not been for her personal experience of their family tragedy of Charlie's early death. He had not yet reached his 21st birthday. He was a young officer posthumously awarded for his bravery. And it was during the war with our boyfriend Gerald Gartland back from the front line and now recovered that Mary would take a decision that changed the course of our life. As I grew, I just wondered what I should do with my life and I prayed and asked God to show me his will. I was very fond of life. I enjoyed everything, tennis parties, dances and so on just like every normal girl. I thought the marriage vocation was a wonderful one. I only thought of my mother. She, the mother of 12 children, 12 souls for God. Oh, what a vocation. Could I be that? And I had determined that if it was God's will that I would get married and be like mother. She was at prayer in Monkstown Parish Church in 1917 when she realised, look, marriage is not for me. That's how she recorded it. So, as I said, many a medical missionary of Mary ditched a boyfriend to join the medical missionaries, but she was the only one who recorded what she was wearing on that occasion. She said, I put on my new navy suit and white spats and met him to tell him that marriage was not for me.
She said he was the one I most loved in all the world. So it was a great sacrifice for her. That is the moment at which she knew that she was being called to do something different. She didn't know what. However, it would be 20 years before Mary's calling and dream became a reality. Yes, 20 long years would follow before Mary Martin's calling would crystallise, but in the meantime she faced many trials and tribulations. The biggest thing that has always held my heart was the 20 years that Mother spent pondering. Pondering, what is it God wants of me? And she didn't rush it. And the obstacles were incredible. Like, when she started, you know, there was no permission for a, a religious woman to do uh, obstetrics. She tried the Carmelites, and there they eventually said no, but they felt she had a vocation. So it went on, and eventually being introduced by Father Ronane to Bishop Shanahan, she made that connection, and that's where Nigeria comes into the picture there. Why was Bishop Shanahan so significant in Mary forming her medical missionaries? Bishop Shanahan was uh, an extraordinary Irish missionary. He had gone to Nigeria in the early years of the century. Bishop Shanahan sailed for Nigeria in 1920 and she had told him that she would study midwifery in the National Maternity Hospital and be available to go and join him in Nigeria. And she was no sooner graduated than she got a cable from him. Come, if you don't mind handling things alone. 1921, Nigeria was a long way away. But to her, like the world was her backyard, really. It was off to Africa, but the challenges never diminished. There was the very hard period, 1924 to 26. She was in Nigeria and Bishop Shanahan had uh, the approval of Pope Pius XI to establish a, a missionary sisterhood. And he intended that she, clearly intended that she would be the foundress of it and that it would be established in Nigeria. But things were, there were a lot of difficulties in the foundation. And eventually he changed his mind and decided it would be better to found it in Ireland. And she received a cable telling her to come home and enter the novitiate. That was the future foundation of the Missionary Sisters of the Holy Rosary at Kilishandra. She remained in Kilishandra to complete her spiritual year there, even though from the beginning she really didn't think it was for her because there was no talk of medical missionary work. So I went to the bishop and I told him that I did not feel that I would be doing God's will by entering a teaching congregation. That I had always had the idea of doing medical work or souls on the missions and I felt that that was God's will for me. And also 
it did not in those days have the freedom that she envisaged was essential to a medical missionary uh, foundation. And so she left um, in March 1926. It was after that then that she went to the Scotland uh, experiment, which was to have been a medical missionary endeavour branching out from a maternity home for single mothers in Glasgow. And that fell through. St. Gerard's mother and baby home in Glasgow was Mary's next port of call. She travelled with high hopes, but again, disappointment would be the outcome. But mother kept searching. And I think this is where Scotland came in too. And I remember when I came from my interview, I was really taken aback when I met her. And she told me that story about going to Scotland and how difficult it was. She said she believed back in the work, and it was very hard work. It was all hard work, and there was no spiritual. The work was so hard that after one year I broke down completely and had to come home, after which I was five years in bed. I was broken down in mind and body and heart. I didn't know what to do or what to think. And all I could do was suffer with our divine Lord and ask him to show me clearly what he wanted. During that time, which I had plenty of time to do, I began to think and pray and formulate. And yet, my director said, it could never be that a religious with vows could do maternity work. So I put it out of my head and I just thought I was a failure and that nothing could be done but to live at home when I got strong. It was another step on the way. She knew then there had to be a balance of the work and what she talked about later, the strong spiritual foundation. That's the part, I think, that touches me, that she was so single-minded and searching and faithful for those 20 years. So it went on. Mary appeared to have reached the end of the line in the search for her true calling. She was ill for some time after Glasgow, but still deep within she summoned the strength to recover and was alert enough to spot an opportunity that would move her dream a little closer. And Aunt Jenny said, I've just been up in the Catholic Library and I've just met the prior of Glenstall, the newly arrived monks. They'd arrived a few years earlier, 1927, I think. And this was 1933. And uh, they're in a terrible state down in Glenstall. The school is going wonderfully well, but they can't keep uh, the domestic help. And, and immediately she said, oh, where is he? He's over in the Catholic Library. She beat it over from Grafton Street, about a mile over to Merrion Square, to the Catholic Library, and he was still browsing the books there. And she sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, excuse me, I heard you're looking for help in Glenstall. Well, I can come and I can bring a bunch of women with me because she was now recruiting and had a few helpers. Because during my time of my illness, I had gathered together a little group of girls who were anxious to follow me with the one idea. And so it happened. He went back, talked to the Archbishop of Cashel, and okay, they could come. And so with her early companions, they went to Glenstall, and in return for spiritual formation, they provided the management of the um, the boarding school. The boy, it was, you know, a pretty um, upmarket boys boarding school and it was only getting on its feet and so she was then able to recruit a matron and um, get recruit staff and put the thing on a stable footing 
And so it happened that when the decree came from Rome on the 11th of February 1936, they were able to leave Glenstall with their initial formation already completed. And then there was a great hurly-burly as they got ready, and it was decided that since there was no way, even though the Pope called for medical missionary women practicing surgery, medicine and obstetrics to be founded, that wasn't enough. You had to have a local bishop who would take you. And the Irish bishops were not rushing to have any foundress with medical missionary notions in her head uh, set up in their diocese because that would obviously take from the uh, candidates of the diocesan congregations whom they were depending on for running the schools and hospitals in their diocese. And so it was felt that, look, we'll have to go to Nigeria because uh, there was a missionary uh, there, um, Bishop um, Moina. Mm -hmm. He was soon to become bishop and... um, he had said yes to her when she asked him would he take her. And he said, well, I said yes because, look, she was very sick in St. Vincent's Hospital when I saw her. And I thought, well, look, she's very well-meaning and I don't think she'll ever make it. And he said, he said, but I did say yes. So she went out to Nigeria as, again, with two companions as lay women and went out in, uh, left in December 36 and arrived in January 37. And Mother Mary uh, wasn't long there when she got malaria. And because of she had a heart condition from having rheumatic fever as a child, she had some complications, cardiac complications, and she was very ill. So they had to move her down to a hospital in um, Port Harcourt, an international hospital, and there was a British doctor there. So he treated her, but he, she, he said she was very ill, and he said she'd have to go home on the next boat. They were waiting for word then to come. They'd got an indication from Rome that the congregation would be approved when the time would come. And so while they were waiting, uh, the word came through from Rome kind of suddenly. One priest who was there in Nigeria when I was there was a young priest in that mission at the time. And he said to me, I carried her down those stairs and I thought, that's the end of a dream. However, she went to Port Harcourt Hospital and then the permission came through for her to make her vows and they went down and she made the vows on what they thought was going to be her deathbed. And so Bishop Moyna wasted no time in getting her professed. So he said, this woman has to make profession before this boat comes and we have to get her professed. So she was professed on her sick bed in Port Harcourt, the Braintree Hospital, they called it, uh, on Low Sunday, 1937. And it was there that, on her deathbed, as it was thought at the time, that the congregation was born. And her two companions were back in Anua and weren't even there. And then eventually she did come home. The boat came a couple of weeks later. And Mother Mary came home to Ireland and left the other two behind. So she started up here then to, to get somewhere to live. At the age of 45, after 20 long years, Mary Martin's dream is finally realised. However, the work had just begun for the foundress of the new Medical Missionaries of Mary.
Mary Martin, now Mother Mary Martin, foundress of the fledgling and groundbreaking MMMs, moved quickly to establish a base here in Ireland. With the assistance of her brother Desmond, she acquired a fine property called Rosemount in Dublin's Booterstown as a house for studies. However, she was on the hunt for premises to accommodate her novitiate, which she acquired in an unlikely place in 1938. Well, she was looking for a place in Ireland and she found one in Colin. And that's how Colin came. And then um, sometime later, the, the novitiate was there for, for two years. Eugene O'Callaghan, who later became Bishop of Clogher, he invited her. He had a house here in Beechgrove that he wanted to make into a maternity hospital and he invited her to take it over. Now, it didn't suit her at the time because she wasn't far enough on, but she wasn't going to let it go. So she, she took that chance. and that's <laughs> The congregation wasn't far enough on to start a hospital, but she, she didn't want to lose the opportunity, so she came. The congregation was in Cullen for two years and came into Beech Grove on the 25th of January, 1939. A few years previous to that, Monsignor Lyons was here as, as the parish priest and he had acquired a property here, which we call Beechgrove, for a small hospital for Indrahada for the Catholic women, as you had the cottage hospital in the other side. So he was looking for how he would run this place, and he then, with, I'm sure, Cardinal McRory, invited Mother Mary, could she run this hospital for them? This small hospital which consisted of 12 beds, Poorly equipment, nonetheless some equipment, and she very quickly brought in the novices from Colin, and the novitiate was on the top floor and the hospital on the bottom floor. Her contacts in Dublin and elsewhere, she got the staff, and the the doctors from Dublin were wonderful. You know, the consultants there, they came down and did a day or whatever so that the hospital would gradually get recognition. Her coming to Drogheda was the start of something extraordinary which wasn't envisaged back then. The notion of Mother Mary coming to the town in the year that the Second World War would start, it was a big plus for Drogheda, although perhaps we probably didn't realise it at the time. How could we have ever estimated or imagined what was to come? Um, she came there into that little house, substantial house by the size of the house in the town, but a little house nonetheless for a hospital, uh, and started out there providing maternity services. The first uh, order of nuns are women, effectively, who were allowed to deliver babies. Uh, she had was a most groundbreaking lady at the time. Uh, she received... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Permission from the Pope to do that. And she must have had an amazing foresight. You know, think of the site. The Lord's Church wasn't there. Um, the, the small chapel of ease would be built uh, sometime in the 50s. But it was open country. A momentous day, that first arrival in the new maternity hospital in early 1940 and Mother Mary was there. She was keen to be here for the first delivery but she was also so often in Dublin trying to make all the uh, necessary connections she needed to get everything established in a proper way with the, the government and everything else. So she had said she wanted to be called and she was. She was called and she came from Dublin in the car and the baby was delivered and she was there for it, to receive the baby into her hands as well. The mother was Emily Hegarty and uh, the baby arrived safe and well and his parents named him Christopher. That date was the 10th of January 1940. Yes, the first patient had been admitted on the 5th of January 1940 and although two of the women were um, ready for labour but they hadn't yet uh, begun and then this emergency uh, came in. Her upbringing and family pedigree and business came to the fore in all aspects of her work at home and abroad. She had that uh, inbuilt in her DNA. She had the business entrepreneurship. We wouldn't have used the word of her, but everything you look at that she did, I'm sure they're not teaching anything apart from technology in the Institute of Management that she didn't do from start to finish. Now, don't forget World War II was raging. Who was going to be building, you know, when at any moment the war could have extended? And yet she built uh, the novitiate uh, so that the novices and the community could move out of uh, the hospital premises and be, be separate, although it was all housed within Beechgrove. Then she started very quickly thinking of something bigger because at that stage, in the beginning, she only had, you had to, the, for the general nursing, that did the, up to PTS here, mm-hmm. and then they had to go to Dublin hospitals. The hospitals could only take two sisters at a time. That meant Mater, um, Vincent, Jervis Street. So that wasn't sufficient to supply the missions and the constant requests which were coming as we became known. But it's very interesting. There was the first outside was Nigeria, but very quickly she accepted an invitation to Tanzania and went out herself to see what it was about. Mother Mary was quick to embrace the potential benefits of moving pictures to promote her sisters and their work. In 1947, Mother Mary was very aware that the best way to bring our work on the missions to our friends and benefactors and to the public was through a film and that's what started the whole visitation going. Pope Pius XI had issued an encyclical about the use of moving images, film, for the work of the church 
So she was reading the encyclicals that were coming from Rome in amid her busy life. And she was saying, oh, yeah, that's what we have to do now. We have to make a movie. She was, uh, she was always very loyal to the church, but she's saying, hey, the Pope is telling us that we should be move- using film for the promotion of the missionary work of the church, so let's do it. Now, this was a full-length film. The version we look at today is, is edited down to about 45 minutes. This was a full-length mm-hmm. two-hour movie. Uh, the leprosy work was focused very much in it, but also our, uh, our work with mothers and children. Uh, in Nigeria. She was a great believer in the media. She was a great believer in using the media to um, back up the cause. Only the best would do in the making of visitation, so Mother Mary secured the services of top filmmaker, UK-based Andrew Buchanan, who travelled to Nigeria to shoot the movie in 1947. What followed when the documentary film was ready was simply extraordinary. We started to show it in London, in a small theatre in Wardour Street, with the help of the producer, Andrew Buchanan, who helped us to really get on the road with it. And we showed it for five weeks, the five days of the week, to a full audience, without much publicity. That was the extraordinary thing about it. That it wasn't, we, we, there was no way of publicising this through London. And as I often, as I think back, I often wonder how on earth we did it. But it happened, and it kept happening. And then, after that, well, we felt that we had reached um, so, so many in that air time that we needed to move out into the bigger cinemas. And during the time of the uh, small theatre, we were busy making contact with the chains of cinemas around London and around England. And the Odeon was the one that really gave us the welcome and the encouragement. And finally, they were the group that we showed it through their cinemas. The audience for the London premiere included a who's who of dignitaries. We have pleasure in presenting this brief record of the arrival of the distinguished audience on the night of June the 23rd, 1948, to the first performance of our film, Visitation. Amongst those who accepted were their excellencies, the ambassadors for Belgium, Cuba, France, Yugoslavia, Mexico and China. Cardinal Bernard Griffin was no less impressed. And the film you're about to see may take its place with the best documentaries ever made. Mother Mary Martin, who's a foundress of the congregation, wished to show the charitable work undertaken by the missionaries for the people of Africa. There's no place like home, as Drogheda hosted the Irish premiere in September 1948. And I suppose it was the big day for Mother Mary that the film was brought to Drogheda. I was going to was to be launched at the Abbey Cinema. It was a big day for all of us. We were all aware of it, but I suppose Mother Mary gave us the inspiration because she left no stone unturned to have it just correct. The Abbey Cinema, Drogheda, was the target for all eyes on this memorable day when a distinguished audience came to the first performance of Visitation in Era. Members of the church, the government, the diplomatic corps and civic authorities of Drogheda were present. 
Also showing on the bill with visitation was the Bridge of the Ford which showcased the MMM's hometown. And she insisted with Andrew Buchanan, the film producer in London, that she would have to produce a film about Drogheda, about our roots here in conjunction with the work that we were doing in Africa. And he said, it's impossible. You cannot match in one movie, you know, the story of the Boyne and all that came after uh, in a movie about Nigeria where you're dealing with the lives of mothers and babies and leprosy work. And so they compromised and two movies were made. The second one was called The Bridge of the Ford. And of course, it was filmed in Drogheda in 1946 and is famous record of how Drogheda was in those days. We're frequently asked by different uh, television production companies if we can take clips from The Bridge of the Ford. It's a wonderful story of Drogheda as it was in 1946, where Mother Mary, if you like, saw the beam of light that was going out around the world. It began in Drogheda. Drogheda contained many abbeys. On the left is the Magdalene Tower, all that remains of the Dominican Abbey founded in 1224 Christa On the west side stood the Priory, built by the Augustinians, still known as the Old Abbey. It is thought to be the site of a monastery founded by St. Patrick, later destroyed by the Danes. With work on all fronts progressing well into the early 50s, disaster struck at home base on Shrove Tuesday 1952 when a major fire destroyed the novitiate. And then there was the tragedy of the fire of 1952, uh, Shrove Tuesday, as they were tossing the pancakes um, uh, in a guest room where a guest was staying, uh, a match had been left lighting and the whole thing went up in flames. Uh, older people in Drogheda will remember uh, the, the drama of that night and not, not a spark fell on the hospital, but the novitiate was uh, destroyed. The fire was extraordinary. Imagine her. She has nothing. She comes to Drogheda. Then she builds this big convent. There was loads of people wanting to join her. And it's just about complete. And there's a fire. Now, wouldn't you get disheartened? But she didn't. But neither did the people of Drogheda. Every convent, every parochial house, every hotel, anybody who had space offered it. I, I understand that there was a hotel out in Chermanfecken and that was closed for the winter. But they opened it and gave it to MMM. With 136 sisters homeless, a new hospital in the pipeline and requests for new missions abroad coming in thick and fast, the challenges mounted, but Mother Mary would never be found wanting. Interestingly, many years before it ever happened, Mother Mary had confided in our brother Desmond about her dream to build a hospital. Desmond told me good many years ago that when he was studying to be an architect in Cambridge, they went out on the little, I don't know, the gondolas, but the little boat for a little row in the boat. She had a, Mother Mary had a picnic 
basket with her and a thing for the ground, a big blanket. And this was before now anything happened, before all of this, but it was in her head. And she said to Desmond, Desmond, they were finished, the little paddle in the water or whatever, or the, up the boat, the spin in the boat, and came back onto the bank. Desmond, she says, I'm going to build a hospital. Marry, he said. Where? I don't know, she said. And he said, who is behind you? There's nobody. Where did you get the idea? She said, there is an inner voice asking me to do this. And she says, what I want you to do for me as well is have the Blessed Sacrament Chapel at the centre of the building. So that when the workers, nurses, doctors, whoever, porters, kitchen cooks, when they're coming and going to walk in the morning and evening and going home, they don't have to come in to pray. They can say their prayer as they're passing by and as they're walking. And he said, Mary, if I can help you in any way, I will. Desmond, she says, I want you to build the hospital. The first sod was turned for the east wing of the new hospital on September 8, 1952, and Mother Mary's business acumen came to the fore as construction followed a definite plan which aided cash flow. Before she built any Lourdes Hospital, the new, the big hospital, she built the laundry. I mean, the first thing that she did when she set about building the hospital was to build the boiler house and the laundry. And she taught all of us who later built hospitals in Africa that you start with the store and the boiler room and these ancillary bits before you start putting in wards and beds. And the Lourdes Laundry really was another enterprise. She brought over a manager from England, and there weren't that many women with degrees in commerce back in the 50s. She brought over this woman to manage the uh, laundry here. And as each piece of equipment arrived, she herself went down and learned how to operate it so that she would know what she was asking others to take on. And she had three vans on the road, and she had contracts with Gormanstown College. She had contracts with the army camp in Gormanstown, from Mosney Butlins, with Dalgan Park, and with Maynooth, I think. She went in, like, for the big contracts. Now, they also did, in those days, people didn't have washing machines in their mm. home. So many people were employed in the laundry, and uh, I think a great service was, was provided. But the income from the laundry was a great help towards paying off the debt of the hospital. Without innovative fundraising, the new structure would never have risen. You could even buy a small piece of the building. Things like... Buying a brick, uh, she had a sweep in the Grand National and in the and the Derby at Christmas. It was a sale of work above in the Mansion House in Dublin. We had phoned a lot in in the Boroughs Hall in Bettystown. There was ladies committees, etc., etc., and she was just trying to get the few bob together because that first part of the hospital was built time and material. It wasn't a contract. She must have been known by every household in the town. Because she went around collecting the odd few quid and a fiver or two from every house with which she built the hospital. 
And that should never be forgotten. And I don't think uh, anybody of my age in the town will forget that that's how the hospital was built and we should all appreciate that huge work. She always said, if God wants it, he will provide. That was her saying. And as things turned out, she was right. In terms of seeking support, the world was Mother Mary's oyster, as a whistle-stop tour of the United States reveals. On the 4th of June 1954, at 7.40 in the morning, they left Boston and drove along the Connecticut River... They travelled from Boston to Albany, to Rochester, to Buffalo, Chatham, Detroit, New Buffalo, Dubuque, Cedar Rapids, Blair, Fremont, North Platte, Nebraska, Sydney, Cheyenne, Rock Springs, Rupert, Eli, Las Vegas and Los Angeles in 14 days. She was hoping to raise money uh, for the hospital in Drogheda and also making the work of the Medical Missionaries of Mary known with a view to recruiting American MMMs, which was quite successful. What a day, 20 years after the foundation of the order in 1957, when the east wing of the new General Hospital opened, an occasion attended by Taoiseach Eamon de Valera and other dignitaries. I was here for the opening of the, the first half of the hospital, and we were novices at the time, and uh, she she organised everything, you know, and she looked after everything herself. But we used to spend the evenings cleaning that hospital from top to bottom, and there were six floors, but we were a big group of young women, you know, and and uh, scrubbing and taking the paint off the floors and take the paint off stairs and the kitchenettes and all. And she would come over in the evening. I'm sure to see that we did it well, but also she'd give us encouragement to keep going. And like everybody was at that opening. Church dignitaries and government people and everybody. Like what organisation there had to be. Yet she had time to come over and see us cleaning. When she wasn't on the road, Mother Mary was a regular visitor to the wards to meet patients in the late evening before she attended to her other duties. You'd always find her in the chapel late at night saying her prayers. And we knew from there she went to her office to catch up with all the correspondence of the day till early hours of the morning, and she kept in touch with everything. We wondered, did she go to bed at all sometimes? Well, looking back now, and you say she had supernatural energy, she had to get something. I don't know how she did it. When you see now up in the archives the number of letters, and you say, did she go to bed at all? And the energy she used to go around with, as I said, when she'd be meeting these dignitaries. I remember when Princess Grace came. All these people came here to see her. And she was, she was there for them, you know. And she just seemed to have boundless energy and boundless stamina. There wasn't only work on the home front to be attended to, as the missions were expanding. But she seemed to be able to keep her finger on the pulse of it in each country, like we had developed into uh, what was then Tanganyika, which is now Tanzania. So we were now not only in West Africa and Nigeria, but we were also in, uh, in East Africa. She had so many good points, but one legendary failing. If you have to have a fault of Mother Mary Martin, it has to be that she was a terrible driver. Some of the sisters often told me afterwards like, that they'd be nearly praying that She'd be driving along and she'd be in the front, of course, and she'd be turning round and talking to them. And 
all this sort of thing, and the sisters would be terrified. She was once going to Dublin, and she was stopped by the guards. I think it was around Balruthery Strait. She pulled up and opened the window, and she said, Am I going too fast, guard? Am I driving too fast? And and the guard said, No, mother, you're flying too low. Though she wouldn't have been recognised for her driving, many accolades were bestowed on Mother Mary, including an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1966. But an honour granted by her adopted home was most appreciated, as she was the first woman to be given the freedom of Drogheda. Well, it must have been amazing, because, you know, up to the 1960s, effectively, in good old Catholic Ireland, uh, women were written out of history. They, they were the people that stood in the background and made the tea or handed over the sandwiches. Seldom did they take the lead. Mother Mary took the lead. She was head and shoulders above all that, and all her contemporaries rallied behind her. And This was a lady who had lived through the Great War, uh, the history that had brought. She went out there as a nurse on the Sam. She lost her brother there in that war. She was very conscious of the independence struggle in Ireland. She was very familiar with people like the Pierces, who would have been our neighbours in Dublin. Uh, Eamon de Valera was a lifelong friend, among many other Irish leaders. And if you look back on the history and the luminaries that came, you know, she was head and shoulders above them all. And when the Drogheda Corporation decided to make her, give her the freedom of the borough, like it must have been a remarkable thing at the time. But out of genuine reverence and respect for the woman that she was, I believe they did that. And wasn't it great to say that Drogheda had the foresight to do that? With stage two of the new hospital moving on, sadly Mother Mary developed Parkinson's disease in 1967 and probably wasn't aware that a remarkable achievement happened with the opening of the West Wing in 1968. She was cared for by the sisters in her own hospital for seven years, where at times she appeared to be lucid. I came home in 1972 and I was going back to open that first African novitiate. And I went up to see her the night before I left. And she was just lying there. Sometimes apparently she was lucid, sometimes not, you know, and... uh, This time she wasn't making any response, whatever. So I explained to her what I was doing and that finally her dream was coming true, that there was going to be, that the Nigerian sisters were going to do their visit in Nigeria. She didn't respond at all, at all, at all. So the sister who was with her said, would you like to sit with her while I go for supper? And I said, yeah, I would. And so I was there for about an hour and occasionally I said something to her. But there was no response. So when Sister came back, I said, Mother, I'm, I'm going now. And she opened her eyes. She always called us dear. She opened her eyes and she said, Dear, there will be many times you will not understand them. They will not understand you either. It will take patience. And that was it. I don't know at what stage she actually heard what I said. And I never forgot that advice. And many times I needed it. At the age of 83, her life's journey ended on January 27, 1975, and despite being ill for some time, Drogheda was plunged into mourning. It was a sad day for us all when she, she went, but at the same time, she was, we, knew, we all knew she wasn't going to do. I think she overworked herself in the end. She killed herself working. What I think needs to be recorded is the impact on the town of Drogheda. The people were at the door as soon as it appeared uh, on on the early morning news. And for three days, the people did not stop coming. 
Now, because she'd received the freedom of Drogheda in 1966, she was being given the equivalent of a state funeral. Now, because she was a foundress, she had to be buried in three coffins, the inner one wood, the middle one lead, and the outer one wood. Her funeral was attended by President O'Dolly and one of his predecessors, Eamon de Valera, along with a who's who of Irish society at the time. Uh, Drogheda stood still uh, for, the, for the passing and the parade, uh, which crossed Boho Brewer and went through the hospital grounds, which was something that hadn't happened before. Those gates hadn't been opened, but that was our monument, so I suppose it was fitting. I always remember all the voluntary societies and groups, the Order of the Red Cross, Boy Scouts, Guides, Everybody participated. Anybody that was anybody was in Drogheda that day uh, for the send-off of Mother Mary Martin. At the end of our story, let's leave the last word on Mother Mary Martin to one of our congregation. She was just such a great woman. She was such a great woman. Woman of courage, of strength, you know, and, and really deep spirituality. Totally, absolutely dedicated to God. And she used to say to us, you, you need to... Spend yourselves as he did. He went about doing good and healing the sick. Spend yourself, and that's what she did, because she spent herself doing good on earth. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 